head of alumni and community relations. And uh, together with an awesome team of people, we've worked with WOHA. And thank you to Richard Hustle for uh, allowing us to use this amazing space. Thank you so, 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 so much. And thank you to your team. And Serena, in particular, has just yeah. been amazing. International urban activist Jane Jacobs um, said that cities have the capacity of providing something for everyone only if and only because everyone is included in planning them. And the Huffington Post found some leading indicators of what makes a great city. Those things include culture, which is more than museums and art galleries. It's also public places where food and artists and music and ambiance come together to create culture. Buy-in or diversity, so different places and ethnicities that come together, but also that intermingle, and also different ages and education levels, types of people where everyone has an opportunity. Connectedness, where people are in tune with what's going on and want to share it and want to get involved. The outdoors, where people get out and about in the city, where they can hang out, enjoy the views, enjoy the architecture, enjoy each other. And smart spending, where the average person can go out and have a good time, regardless of their income level. So all of these things suggest that People are the essence and, a, and the heart of a great city. And we'll hear tonight what makes a great city from a, a Singaporean perspective. Um, we have experts, alumni experts on our panel with different perspectives, all of whom live in Singapore, uh, except for Simon Anderson, who is the moderator and, and who until just recently um, was the dean of the School of architecture, landscape architecture, and visual arts. So where we live has a significant bearing clearly on how we live. Tonight we're going to hear about that from people who live in Singapore. And I will let you um, get underway. One thing I want to say just before we start is that this, you might think that the microphone is a bit of overkill. <laughs> The reason that we have it is because we're recording this for podcast. So we're doing similar events to these or to this one in Melbourne and uh, Sydney and also in Perth. So we should get different perspectives from different cities on what makes a great city, which I'm really excited about. And I think it'll be really interesting as a series. So this is the first of a few more. Uh, so we will we'll start with the panel discussion, then we're going to open it up for questions. When it comes time for questions, if we can ask you to ask the questions using a mic so it gets picked up in the recording. Okay, so Simon, please take it away. Thanks very much, Brenda. So it's my pleasure to be here tonight. I'm in Singapore on some other business, and when I discovered there was it was a discovery that I was going to be here. Uh, I was asked to do this, and I was delighted to do this. I've, in the past, done events for alumni just in architecture and visual arts and landscape, but it's great tonight to have a, a mixed audience or a, an audience from the entire spectrum of disciplines and backgrounds where UWA uh, offers teaching and research. So what I will do is I'll quickly go through and introduce the panel to you. 
uh, and let them say a little bit about their uh, background uh, and ask them to, I, I think, tell us their very first take on what it is that makes, makes a great city. We'll then, I think, uh, have a chance to have a discussion between panel members and then build you into the discussion further on. And we're endeavouring to try and wrap it up at about 7.30 before we move upstairs and have some refreshments. So, let me start with Richard Hassel. Now, Richard did architecture at Uniway in the 1980s. I, in fact, taught Richard way back in 1987. And uh, he's been in Singapore since uh, 1989, end of 1989. Uh, his practice, WOHAR, is hosting us tonight. So, Richard, what makes a, what makes a great city? Hmm. That, that came up really quickly, the question. I was <laughs> <laughs> for a longer <laughs> introduction. Um, I think for me, it's, um, it really is about how um, accessible it is in all kinds of ways. So I think it's um, when you can um, uh, feel like you're part of all the kinds of going on of the city. So physically accessible and culturally and socially accessible. Um, in terms of um, sort of what we've been looking at with um, uh, new master plans and things is also how can we make cities um, sort of socially, culturally, and environmentally sustainable, and that's something that uh, we're finding. Uh, Interestingly, is a, is a kind of topic that uh, crosses so many boundaries um, that many people, there's no one really looking at it in many ways. That just when you think it's such a big issue, there would be uh, <coughs> a huge amount of research and, and people operating in it. Um, instead, everyone's becoming like experts and looking at small components of it, but putting the whole thing together is, in a way, being left to uh, chance and serendipity. <laughs> and what about Singapore itself? I mean, this is a very special city. It's a, a country, it's an island, it's uh, small, uh, it has a particular historical, cultural, economic background. It had, and I know you've uh, done a lot of work in Singapore, but in elsewhere, other cities also increasingly. So what Singapore taught you about uh, great cities? I think Singapore is really interesting because it has been planned centrally and from a top-down kind of structure, which in most cases is seen as something uh, what you shouldn't do. Uh, from Jane Jacobs and everything, it's very much bottom-up. Uh, but you can see amazing advantages when it's done well that you can make the transformation so quickly. And I think Singapore is now in an interesting transition where it's becoming more consultative and more... Uh, starting to see the um, there's limits as well to how much you can direct from on high and that you can get um, all the big picture things happening but it can, it can sort of end up when you get up close to it there's just not the layering and the density and the interest so interestingly now I think after getting all the big things right uh, there's a there's a new layer coming in of consultation with with um, community groups and people are finding their voice and starting to contribute what they want from the city. Uh, but for architects who are always a little bit of, uh, see themselves I think as benevolent dictators and <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it's actually a very appealing <laughs> uh, 
uh, environment to operate in because um, uh, I think you can test out good ideas and big ideas much more easily here, I think, than in many places where there's so many voices that you need to, you need to find a very, uh, in many ways, bland common denominator that will be uh, get around all the objections for various interested parties. Uh, so, yeah, we, we did a scheme where we said, uh, we called the whole project Architect Save the World and Bring Joy to Millions. Um, and that sort of gives you a little bit of this kind of uh, context in which we were seeing some of our research projects. Um, and I think Singapore gave us that mindset, really, the idea that if you if you really want to think about big ideas and do them, it's actually possible. Mm. I think if I'd stayed in Perth, where it's you know where local government has so much, um, there's so many voices, and I thought myself, you know, you wouldn't even propose those things because you'd know everyone would shout down and say, "How dare you presume to speak for so many people?" So thanks, Richard. Now, can I introduce Darren Home and Darren? Uh, is a science graduate from UWA and is now the head of partners at Citizen Farm. And Darren's great interest is uh, around the, uh, I guess, well-being and food security. Mm -hmm. So, Darren, how does uh, food security make a great city? Um, on on that note, I mean, Singapore has been in, in importing food uh, since we we left that whole. Um, uh, you know, in 1965, we used to have 20 over 1,000 farms, but now we only have, what, 100 of them. So during this, this transition, we have begun to just rely on, on countries for, for, for food, uh, whether it's for trade purposes or, or just because, you know, we are a melting pot of everything. But, but I think that in terms of food security, we should at least cover a bit more than 10% um, of our own perishables, right? Because food is categorized by perishables and non-perishables, and non-perishables are the rice, your sugar. So we, we have stockpiles of them, that's, that's fine. Um, but the perishables are the ones that give you your, your vitamins and your proteins and your digestibles. Um, and I find that 10% that was alarmingly low for, 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 for a country. So yeah, that was how I, I kind of felt that if, if it was anything and, and any time that with the technology today, we can use urban farming to, to, be, to bridge that gap. Um, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, food is too commoditized at the same, at the same time, right? So we need to uh, change that around. We need to tell people, show people how food is, how food is produced, um, where providence is, 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 is what, what providence is about. Um, so we, that's how urban farming can position um, to, to also show people, hey, this is where your food comes from and not just from the supermarket. Yeah. And clearly there's a health dimension to food yeah. rather than just sustenance. And indeed, as I was coming up reading the Singapore Airlines magazine, there was a, a, an extensive article about how to eat well in hawkers, uh, in uh, hawker schools, and to, some uh, celebrity uh, celebrities were yeah. giving advice on how best to eat well in, uh, in, on the streets in Singapore. Yeah, I mean, statistically, our vegetable consumption has been going down Marginally, it's very little, but still it's going down, right? Our population has increased, but stats has shown that it's, it's dropping. Uh, at the same time, meat has been slowly and, and gradually increasing. Um, so I think it's about information. I think it's about education and, and telling them that having some chlorophyll in your body is actually not better for you. <laughs> yeah. well, thanks, Darren. So now, now Rachel Lum is with us tonight. Rachel 
uh, the Commerce graduate from UWA in 2007, is now the Associate General Secretary of the Kindness Movement in Singapore. So this brings in the people dimension. So Rachel, how do people make a great city? I think people bring in their culture, makes a great city. But what makes a city greater is happy people. And how do we get happiness? Wealth doesn't, money doesn't buy you happiness, right? Maybe a box of chocolate. Um, but when, we, when kindness actually uh, makes you happy, when you do kind things, your happiness increases because your brain releases chemicals that makes you happy. So when you do kind things for people, um, they feel happy. And when you receive kindness, your kindness increases. So just imagine um, you throw a stone into the pond and plop. And at the end of the pond, you will see a lot of waves. And the reason for doing that is that you threw a stone into the pond. And this stone, imagine, uh, take this stone as an act of kindness. When you throw the stone in, there will be a lot of ripples forming. And ripples of kindness are being formed by just an act of kindness. So an act of kindness could be a little bit of consideration for one another, a little bit of thoughtfulness, being other-centeredness. And in Singapore context, it could just be greeting your neighbour, saying hi, hello, or holding the lift door for somebody, or just signalling before you move off the car. In Australia, I noticed in Perth where I drove, uh, when I signal, there, there will be a gap open for me. But in Singapore, they say Singaporeans are like magicians. You signal, no more gap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think happy people will make a great city in Singapore. So Perth is a kind city, is it? Yeah, kind city. I wouldn't have thought so from the, some of the things I've seen on the roads lately in, 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 in Perth where I'm not sure if Singapore has the examples of road rage. But uh, we've had some rather frightening cases in, in Perth over the last 12 months. I, mean, I, did, I witnessed one on Stirling Highway outside of UWA only three days ago where someone got out of their car and uh, was very, uh, very short with a, uh, a particular dr other driver, which just astounded me. So thanks, Rachel. Now, next, we have with us uh, Chandra, and Chandra is background is actually in business at UWA, but he actually originally trained in engineering in, a, uh, uh, in, in Scotland and uh, business administration at UWA with Jeff Souter, who is one of the uh, linchpin tonight in our, I guess I think Jeff's produced at least three people I've met, met this evening and probably more. So from an uh, a infrastructure or, or transport point of view, Chandra, how important is that in uh, making a great city? I think if you look at any cities, right? uh, to travel to work or to any place, you need some form of transport. So if you look at the early development of Singapore, we had transport, buses, and so on. So if it's a progressive step that we have taken. At the moment, we are comparing to cities like Korea, right? uh, Japan, Hong Kong, London, New York. So if you look at those cities and if you compare it, where are we? We're quite comparable, right? So great cities must have good transport. But we have to go one stop, one step further in Singapore. If you look at it, all the while, it, you have 
transport plus personal transport. Personal transport is something the government is trying to, you know, sort of control it. If you don't control it, then that will actually create chaotic in terms of the road usage and so on. At the moment, if you look at it, it's about 10 to 15 percent of the road. Uh, the land mass is actually used for roads. You can't continuously build roads in Singapore. So what happens? So you have a public transport, you have the MRT networks and so on, and it's the bus networks. So bus are those competing with the pub, uh, personal transport. So a great city is something that you must not take more than half an hour to travel to your place, if possibly, right? We travel sometimes an hour or even more, right? So that's not good. Right. So every day, if you actually two hours of your time is actually taken away just by travelling, right. would it be half an hour, two and half an hour back, one hour? That should be fine. So great cities, interconnected, connectedness is one thing that we need to look at. So if you look at the recent announcement that the URA have actually announced, that's where they're going to have the so-called the Lake District. So what they're trying to encourage is actually no public transport if possible. I mean, public transport, but personal transport, you try to limit it. So whatever travel that you make, hopefully you can actually do the, um, the, the rides, the last journey that you're looking at. So probably public transport, and you can either walk or you ride. So cycling and all that is something that actually the government is trying to encourage. But because of the climate here is humid, right? So what they have done is if you, if you look at the, uh, so it, the so-called uh, pathways they've created is pretty nice. If you take a cycle, if you cycle between the so-called, uh, from your place of stay to the MRC, if you took all these uh, so-called the parts that they create, they call it the uh, park connectors, yeah? So the park connectors are pretty good. It's actually covered. Unless you have taken one of those, you will not appreciate because I did that uh, three weeks ago <laughs> to a cycling 10 kilometers. So if you look at it, it's fantastic. So great cities, you might have all those that I mentioned. Yes, well, certainly great cities and great transport seem to, to go hand in hand. Great public, great public transport. We'll probably come back to that a, a, a bit later. But uh, lastly, can I introduce Jaylene there at the end? Now, Jaylene's a psychologist originally trained in uh, the United States, but her PhD was with us in 2012, and now she has her own consultant to hear mental notes. So, Jaylene, uh, Singapore is often talked about as a high-performance, high-stress uh, society. So I'm wondering what you have to say about the possible antipathy between uh, being a great city but also having some slightly uh, stressful uh, consequences for being in that great city. Yeah, absolutely. Well, psychologists have researched uh, what sort of people gravitate towards big cities and they have found that people who are highly educated, people who are talented, people who are creative gravitate towards big cities. And so just by social affiliation, we actually do have a melting pot for peak performance, uh, if you look at it that way. Um, but when we do look at what are some of the, the factors that cause stress, um, that also leads into it. 
So you have, uh, I guess, a, a melting pot for peak performance, but also there are consequences for that in terms of um, with ambitious people come a, a rise of, of competitiveness. But on that note, there has been also research looking at what creates uh, happiness as, as well as um, just overall wellness in cities across people. And a recent study um, that looked at about 5,000 people across five major cities. So they looked at cities like um, Hong Kong, New York, Paris, Toronto, and, um, and what they found is that within these cities, there's different factors that really contribute to people's sense of happiness and well-being. And there's factors called place variables. So place variables are things that enhance pleasantness. Things like how beautiful the city is, access to green space, as well as things like opportunities in terms of recreational and cultural um, activities, as well as access to public transport. But then there's also factors called performance factors. And these factors are things like access to schools and um, government policy as well. And they found that when you look at the general population, older people actually find performance factors to be much more significant in creating happiness. So performance factors really are about covering the basic needs. But if you look at the younger population, psychologically, they gravitate towards factors that are those place variables. So really wanting opportunities for recreational as well as our cultural opportunities and things like this. So if we look at that in the context of Singapore and also Perth, where we, we, we all have spent time as well, I think they both definitely cover in so many ways a lot of those particular variables. So in saying that, if we have a melting pot for high performance, you know, people gravitating with, um, with creativity and uh, ambition, but you also have these factors covered in terms of place variables as well as performance factors, then I think you have an opportunity for a bit more balance um, in terms of, of happiness. So thank you, everybody. Now, that really introduces the panel's uh, background in Singapore. So uh, now to move the discussion forward, I thought I might ask some of the panelists about what would make Singapore a greater city, or indeed, what can cities really take from Singapore? So, to, again, to get the ball rolling, I know Richard's been doing a lot of work in, or some big work in Dakar. Now, Dakar is a very, a very different city to Perth. And in Singapore, it's a city that's struggling under enormous uh, pressures. Uh, so, Richard, what, what do you think we can take from places like Perth and Singapore to, to Dakar? And indeed, probably what would Dakar help? Singapore and Perth in, in return, because I would imagine there's a two-way dialogue, and I know in some of your recent writings, you've used Dakar a lot to talk about uh, the good and the bad, and yes. this way and that way, in terms of an exchange. <laughs> well, Dakar's a challenging one to bring stuff back from. Mm. Um, yeah, Dakar is, I mean, it's, I think it's one of the examples of when you, when you have pretty... Um, Low level of control and governance. What can what can happen? It's I think the fastest one of the fastest growing cities on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, 
uh, very poorly served by infrastructure and planning. Um, I guess for me, what I what we've been really impressed by is the human spirit there. We're working with an NGO who um, does all kinds of uh, uh, activities for bringing up the population. So rather than through the official political stream, they're working through uh, the NGO stream and just seeing how that they sort of self-organize and put into place infrastructure and training and economic uh, elements all together. That's uh, sort of, yeah, in a way the complete antithesis of Singapore where everyone's so used to it being done well from the top that people don't tend to think or engage very much with the systems. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's nice to see even when, you know, your first impression there is it's just like an out-of-control battleground uh, of unpleasantness. <laughs> and then everyone you meet is fantastic and everyone seems to be involved in really trying to make a difference. Uh, so that's, um, it's a really good reminder. I always think it'd be good to bring um, anyone who says they're um, unhappy or depressed in Singapore in Perth to just put them on the streets in Dhaka for a week and I think they'll come back so happy with their current situation. <laughs> that's right. Now, uh, Chandra, what your thoughts on infrastructure in particular, I mean, Dhaka famous for having little infrastructure. Singapore famous for having probably some of the finest infrastructure. I think what, what we do is some regional jobs that we have an exchange. I mean, like Philippines, they wanted to improve their so-called their network. So they call for a tender. So we did sort of participate in that. And I think uh, one of our subsidiaries, one of the LTA subsidiaries, is actually doing jobs for them. Likewise, uh, in other places in Middle East, I was personally involved in um, uh, Dubai when they first started up the uh, so-called the, the MRT network. So they were looking at how to actually uh, put in an MRT network. So I was personally involved for that one. And currently what we are looking at is um, Qatar. Qatar, they are coming up with another project for themselves because of the Olympics. So they are asking us to participate in the initial design and so on and so forth. So that's where we get around doing some of those jobs, even in the ASEAN itself, as well as uh, far apart, as well as uh, uh, Middle East. And there are some work in Dublin that we have done I mean, through uh, the MSI Global. Yeah. Anyone else want to jump in, Darren or uh, Rachel? on? Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, on the urban farming side of things, uh, you, you think about rooftops, you think about underutilized spaces like under the flyover, under the viaduct. Um, but most of the time, Singapore wasn't intending to be in this field, right? It was, it was a market-driven kind of uh, endeavor. Um, but I think what, what a city can do better is really to make it a bit more fluid. I think, I think Singapore, I don't, know what, I don't know how the architects um, or the people in your area really design it. I find them too um, structured, too zonal. It should should be mishmash a bit more fluid. I find that that's I think that's why when I look at spaces, um, a lot of times uh, I just can't do much. Um, 
unless unless the the substation or the water is, is nearby. So infrastructurally, is this not conducive for urban farming as it is? But but they are changing it. I mean, like Jurong Lake as well. They are, they're looking in it in a very different in a very different um, lens. So, um, but yeah, I mean, most of Singapore is developed what it is. But but is that actually true though, from an architectural standpoint, that that Singapore is zonal, or would you say that that's possibly a mindset, knowing that it's such a small place? And it's easier to have that myopia in terms of just really segmenting things in your mind. So, yeah, is it is it actually a physical concept or is it more a mental thing? I think it is. Uh, the land is 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 fixed and limited. The supply, apart from constantly reclaiming land uh, from the sea, <laughs> but land. even that is making land is super expensive and has to be, in a way, deliver return on that investment. Uh, but from what I think, but I think it is also a mindset that Singapore has a kind of sense of land scarcity. So everything is tightly controlled to make sure land isn't wasted and that it's performing at a high, high level. So when, actually it's quite strange because of all the cities in the world, it has so much like empty plots of land because everyone's so careful about the land that, you know, you rarely see other places in the you know, other cities where the building's been demolished and grass has been put in and trees and it's just waiting there to be to be reused. Mm -hmm. It's not... Um, the, the sort of usual cycle of urban decay doesn't happen here. It's like operating at full production. Yeah. The minute it slips down a bit, it mm -hmm. is demolished and prepared as a fresh, clean slate for another high-intensity mm -hmm. development on it. I mean, you're right, because... Uh, you really land scarce here. Every plot of land has to be carefully decided. But the good thing is, because the subject of uh, sustainability is something that right on top. So whenever the new building get building, that is considered. So it trickles down all the way from sustainability. So the building itself will have to be well designed. And all the interconnectedness that you require, the trades and all that, all has to be linked. So, what was done in the past is past. So the future, because new concepts are all being born, right? So that all comes in together. So if you look at the so-called high-speed train that's coming into Singapore, right? It's on one side. Right? So you have two links in Singapore, right? One is from the Chuas and one from the Woodlands. So for the one that's come from the Woodlands, they have to really decide where is it going to go, right? So Lake District, it's going to enter the Lake District. Mm. So that's where the whole city is going to be developed, right? Really, the state of the art. Then the other line that will come in, it will come through Woodlands, right? That will be a shuttle because Singapore, we depend on Malaysians, you know, coming into work at least about four hundred thousand. So right, traveling up and down every day. So sooner or later, like what uh, Najib mentioned in one of his speech, it could be the other way. You know? Singaporeans will be staying in JB, coming into Singapore. If you don't have a transport system, efficient transport system, how can you do that? It's impossible. And I think um, factories will be actually located in uh, JB itself. And here will be high-tech industries. 
and you cannot be high tech all the time because cost of uh, doing business in Singapore is pretty expensive. So you have to balance it between both. So it's, it's just like New York and um, what do you call? Uh, New, Jersey. New Jersey. So that's the concept Najib mentioned. Take 10 years from now, things will happen in that way. But are, are goods also going to be flowing to and fro? I think it will. Not just the people? Yeah, what's, what's happening here is because both sides got to be stable. The government has to be very yeah, stable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very stable, right? Yeah. So if that doesn't happen, all this falls yeah, So, so far so good. Structure. Hopefully they can maintain this for the next 10 years. You, you, if, you, if you look at uh, the recent development in Malaysia, right, they're going to move goods from the east right down to the so-called KL side. Right? And from there, you know, they can distribute. So, China is actually working out quite cleverly with you know, all these countries, even in the ASEAN itself. So they're coming from the north and then coming enter into Malaysia. So the, the, the link from KL upwards, that's taken care. China will do it. It's now the link from KL down to Singapore. That's where Singapore is getting. So it's going to be an exciting period for the next 10 years and beyond. I think that's how it's going to be. People will be traveling by enough trains and all that, just like in Europe, right? If you want to go from one city to the other, it's very easy, right? It will happen in Asia. That's right. So I'm immensely optimistic about the future of cities. If I think about even in my working life, visiting cities that uh, 30 years ago were relatively hostile and unfriendly places, and you go back 20 or 30 years later, and suddenly they have become marvelously uh, humane. In particular, I remember being as a student in London, New York in the early 1980s when they were considered to be relatively almost, well, in the case of New York, almost dangerous, in the case of London, uh, positively dirty. And yet you go back a generation later and suddenly they're marvellously uh, renovated without being erased of their character. So uh, uh, the question, I think, in some sense rhetorical, to me, all cities are great things, are the most remarkable things that humans have ever, ever conceived of. So this is probably a good time, I think, for us to now in the spirit of this informal discussion, allow you to perhaps ask some of our panelists some questions in particular. Yeah, thanks. Uh, my name is Ankush, graduated last year. Uh, I have a question for Richard. So I'm not an architect as well, but I think the buzzword that I hear a lot in architecture is sustainable. So, and you mentioned it yourself, architecturally, uh, infrastructurally, environmentally, socially uh, sustainable. Uh, so the infrastructure architecture bit makes sense. You know, we have a we have a population, we have a land mass, we don't have enough land. We can, I've heard people say the only way we can go is up. So, and environmentally as well, we need to build with sustainable materials. But the, the question I want to ask is what, what exactly does socially sustainable mean? I mean, is, there, is this term just something that's thrown around by architects or does it actually mean something? So, I mean, when you build, a, when you have a space of land, say you take the public housing here, the, an HTB block, uh, does it mean that you set aside a certain amount of space for a playground or like a like a void deck or a meeting ground? Does that count as socially sustainable? Or what exactly, when you take up an architectural project and somebody says, oh, it has to be socially sustainable, what does that actually mean? Thanks. Actually, that's something that's been really interesting to us. Uh, we've, we think there's an issue when cities get denser and denser that usually the thing that disappears is the social space and the common space. You have more and more people trying to use the same playground or the same footpath, and that adds a lot to stress because people are, are being forced 
closer and closer together or are battling for these resources to have find time to use them. So what we've been uh, investigating, and I think we've successfully applied in quite a few of our projects, is that actually high-rise just means more floor space. And there's a real sort of political and economic decision about how you allocate that floor space. Uh, and we've found it's not that uh, difficult, it's challenging, but it's not impossible to create public and community space um, at the same time you're creating high-rise other sort of spaces. So you can have a high-rise park, you can have a high-rise uh, childcare centre, you can have uh, basically whatever you want to tick off as making a city a great city, you can decide to put in as much of that as you like at the same time you're creating all this other stuff. And uh, so our Skyville project that we've done in Dawson, a public housing project. We made the entire rooftop a park and we made community space every 11 floors through the block as well. Uh, and we're starting to study that and see how that's, that's actually functioning in, in practice. Um, the other two aspects we've done is we've introduced a, a kind of scoring system because we think um, in government particularly, in Singapore government even more, having scoring is something very uh, important as a tool to uh, uh, assess and compare and to, um, I think you only measure what you value. So if you value civic space and community space, then it's something that you should be measuring. So in a recent book we did, we had something called the Civic Generosity Index, where you actually measure projects as if they were a person and they were a citizen, like how nice are they? So do they offer shelter to passers-by? Do they engage spatially with the city? Do they offer like gardens not just to their own end users but to the public? And, and so we think as a way of measuring that, it's something that can possibly be very effective that if one developer has high civic generosity scores and another developer has horrible ones, basically they produce sort of asshole buildings that no one wants, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that this could be something that people could, you know, discuss or when they're tendering for land, they maybe lose points because they don't do uh, good buildings. Would you, would you say that social sustainability is linked to happiness? I think it is, yeah. yeah. I think, and, you know, there's all these movies like High Rise and the J.G. Ballard book mm. things about the alienating um, environment that's created by high-density high-rise. I think the Arctic lived on the top floor and died in the end yes. in, uh, <laughs> high rise. <laughs> uh, but I think it really is that sense that um, I think the commons as a, as a, as a concept where mm. people come together in a space and, it's, and, and build community through their interactions in this sort of space is, is a really important um, element in great cities. Mm. And we have to make sure we're maintaining or enhancing and increasing the commons. Mm. I, think, I think you're right because the, when the government did the uh, so-called sector for Pongol, if you look at the Pongol district itself, from nothing they have to build something. Mm. So they actually have to create different segments of it to make sure that, you know, you can actually interact, you can actually cycle, you can go to the park. So you're right in, in that sense. Yes. In, in the apartments are actually similar yeah. to everywhere else. So they make the sure that the quality of life it, it, in the district yeah. is they don't place the, they don't place a so called block of flats just, you know, in rows, but you know, spread them around. Mm. Right? And parks in between and so on and so forth. Yeah. There's another question in the middle I saw a much yeah. top. Um, 
Hi, I'm Theodore. Uh, 1997, uh, BSc, I really like the spread of, you guys chose well, um, the spread of perspective that uh, uh, the panel is made up of. Um, I'd like to just uh, add into the discussion about the social uh, aspect of, of uh, the, a great city. And uh, I see and I dream uh, a future where the young people or the, pe the young people of this generation start who, who are getting up into leadership, into, into taking, uh, in getting involved in the, the society and the community that they live and work and uh, play in, uh, to start to see things that instead of us, Singapore, I, I, I like what you brought up, Richard, that uh, it's very centrally organized and we have to shift. When you were saying, talking about Dhaka, it's Bangladesh Dhaka. Right? Mm. Yeah, so to shift towards a civil society aspect where we do not wait for our higher-ups to decide, but we start to engage and say, I can see that gap if there is a gap. And I can rally people to fill in, uh, uh, to come up with solutions or to come up with uh, design things to reach that dream that I, that, of that little gap that I see. I don't want to see it from a negative or a positive angle. So it's, it's the dream that I can see. Um, I, I, I like to, I like that, um, was it? Sandra, right? Sandra is talking about bicycling and all. I like to, you know, it's great. I was involved in Safe Cycling Task Force, so I can see the, the shift in, in the transport side moving towards uh, uh, um, a car-like society and uh, giving more impetus towards human-friendly, human-powered uh, vehicles and all. Uh, I, I see there's, there is a a lot more avenue for us Singaporeans or people who live in Singapore to move towards this. Don't worry. Don't worry about the heat and all uh, buildings having more uh, shower facilities and all that for people to freshen up. But then start to make use of a car-like society and uh, public transport, personal human-powered transport, and then move towards that generosity, kindness that, Rachel, you were talking about, but uh, I, I had the opportunity to do a social test where I cycle my, my kids to school and uh, that quiet exercise area that people uh, that I go through in Gimo, uh, instead of saying, excuse me, ding, ding, we say, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. You know the Aussie thing, good morning? We don't have that in Singapore, right? Good morning, good morning. Suddenly you start to see people saying good morning to us because they're used to saying good morning to us. But when they cross each other, then they start to say good morning to each other. And then this car-like society, but human-powered thing, starts to, starts to connect other people to say, hey, hi, good morning. Now I start, you start to see the buzz happening around. And so you've got the infrastructure or de-infrastructurize, but to make it human-friendly. You've got the, the buildings that, that, uh, that come up with, with that, that uh, facilitate a common space, 
you've got a kindness movement that, that enables people to, to, uh, to, or at least, well, it is a centrally organized kindness, <laughs> kindnessness, <laughs> but which I, I think we should really, really uh, start to get, uh, you know, get down to the ground. But I, I think my comment is uh, there is a dream that we can, the older folk here, and we've got some younger folk, uh, facilitate, starting with ourselves. We've got an Aussie experience. We've got a very friendly background that we have experienced in over the last three, four years that we've been in Australia. Uh, but it starts with, what, we had 7,000? We've got 7,000 graduates? About 7,000 alumni here, multiplied by our families. That's a lot of uh, mass capacity to, <laughs> to, 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 to ripple out and do something about it. And if we, we reach out to the rest of us and say, let's be the friendly people, having the structure, maybe plant, plant you know, get more, more people doing planting and farming downstairs in little places, that would be great. I, I guess that's my comment, as I see what you're sharing, fantastic. So, being a, a good graduate of our Faculty of Arts, you've done a great job in summarising and uh, not answering the question or even asking a question. So, Can we... at this point, we want to get... Give it back to Brenda, who's going to quickly wrap up we here and take us upstairs. Only Thanks. a couple minutes left, and I know both of you have Do you have an actual oh. question? Oh. <laughs> okay, one more. One more. Oh, okay. uh, thank you. I think this is a very interesting session. Now, uh, I want to let you know, my name is Big. Uh, I did my DBA uh, 2000-2005. Now, I, 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 came, I came specially to attend this session, and it, it matters a lot to me. Uh, with this question, what makes a great city? Now, um, my focus is on, on the customer care. Customer care measurement is my forte. It's more than just customer satisfaction. So in that uh, focus, uh, that question, what makes a great city? Two things came up to my mind, which I want to ask you, the panel. The first thing is, what's the definition of great? A city is great. Perth? Great, Melbourne is great, Sydney is great, Singapore is great, KL, KL is great. Well, what's the definition of great? First question. Now, uh, second question is, does it matter to anyone? Is it to us Singaporeans? I mean, Singapore is a great city, does it matter to Australians? Or to, to, to Donald Trump? I mean, does it matter to whom? I mean, I, I, I guess lately, uh, uh, PM, uh, PM Lee uh, somehow implies uh, in his message that, hey, let's make Singapore uh, a city that our own Singaporeans want to live in, you know, and be happy, right? As you say, happiness. I mean, maybe he said that, or maybe he's trying to say, hey, um, let's make another uh, a PSA take the port, get a beautiful port, you know, but take it away and bring it to us. Not just want a first-class port, but... And then redevelop and, and attract multi-millionaires to come here or billionaires to come here, you know. Maybe that's great for those people coming here, you know. 
So that, that's my question to you. Okay, please, please help me understand that. Mm-hmm. I think, um, Someone would answer that? I, can help, I can help with that. Mm. Go ahead. So I think uh, what we've mainly talked about in the session today is based around the perspective from the masses um, in terms of you know, mass development, um, policy and such. But I feel that this question is actually needed to be looked at from an individual perspective. And um, in terms of that, I think we all have our own definition in terms of what makes a city great. And uh, that really comes down to our mindset, down to our own perspective, and what we choose to look at. Um, And it reminds me of when uh, I was moving back to Perth um, years ago now, and I was currently living in the States. And I was debating whether to actually move to Boston to do my PhD or to move back home to Perth. And, you know, lots of different things in my mind in terms of, I mean, two very, very different places, but both wonderful in their own ways. And one of my very, um, very wise mentors said, you know, when it comes to a city, it's really what you make it. And, uh, and that really stuck with me ever since. <laughs> and it, hasn't, it doesn't matter where I've been in the world. I think if you have that mindset in terms of it's what you make it, I think it will be great. I think, yeah, personal responsibility is a big part of this, isn't it? Um, Now, I know that other people have questions, and this is, it's a really, really interesting topic, and I think we could go on and on for, but one of our panelists does have to catch a flight, so I'm I'm going to uh, wrap things up here, and we're going to go upstairs where the panel, except for Darren, (laughs) will be, because he has to fly away, and you'll have lots of opportunity to um, talk with them and ask them questions. One thing I did want to say is that, first of all, please join me in thanking the panel and Simon for a conversation. And I also wanted to say to you that the, um, the Singapore Alumni Network is here tonight, the network committee, and I just wanted to, if you could maybe just raise your hands so that people know who you are. They'll be upstairs and talking with you. Part of a great community, as you know, is um, people coming together and working together. And there are, we just started an initiative called Pursue Inclusion UWA, which we're hoping to have the people and alumni in Singapore get involved with. And so when your network reaches out to you, I hope that you will respond positively and get involved. Because it is about personal responsibility. And, and um, there was a thing in your paper just yesterday about how inclusion is hugely important for the future of the city. And I think um, we can all make a difference as far as that goes. So now, please go upstairs to the rooftop and enjoy. There, it's an amazing space up there, including a rooftop garden. And thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for downloading today's podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. At UWA, we help connect alumni with each other in our university through regular events on campus across Australia and the globe. To ensure you don't miss out on events near you, make sure your contact details are up to date and follow UWA alumni on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.